I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. This is technically the first real episode of the series because last week we did our special on Margaret Beaufort to introduce the idea of Tudor motherhood, but now we are really going to introduce you to what motherhood looked like with the focus on how queens raised their children. The way we're going to do it is, we thought, kind of an interesting twist on it is we're going to be looking at the mothers of our six queens and how the six queens were raised. So not only are we looking at the sort of the societal standards that they would have learned about how to raise children and the the role of motherhood, we're also going to be looking at their personal experiences and what they were personally referring to when uh, they became mothers or stepmothers or whatever. It's almost like an extended honourable mention because like you said, we're looking at their, their mothers and how they shaped our six queens' understanding of motherhood and potentially the types of mothers that they'd they'd be because just like today I think everybody's influenced by their parents um, or whoever it is that's bringing them up. I think before we get into that it's probably worth a conversation about the social history about the concepts of motherhood. It's definitely something important that we need to establish right away. The concept of like parenthood and childhood in the early modern period it looks nothing like our modern concepts. Not in the slightest. Exactly. So I think it's something that we, throughout the series, need you to kind of like turn off your modern brains. And we need to be able to look at this experience from the early modern perspective in order to best understand it. So like, we're not going to be judging anybody for being a bad parent or anything by our standards or a good parent or whatever, because it's just, it's so different. It doesn't really make much sense to do that either. Right. We're not going to learn anything that way. Just know that when we are going to be talking about things that do, they are a little bit reductive for women, right? Like we are going to be talking a lot about the quote usefulness of women as I love that giant reproductive organs, basically. You've probably all been here long enough to know that when we say these things, it's not because we personally think them, but it's just how you have to look at the way that their world worked. And I think it's sometimes worth being uncomfortable with that. And letting it sit and sometimes people feel like, well, this is icky and why are we talking about people like this? Because the more you let it sit and the more you let it sort of take hold in your brain about these concepts, I think that's the best way we have of understanding people. I think what's interesting is in researching not only the lives of our six queens, but the lives of their mothers and how our six queens were raised we get very different instances of what motherhood looked like to different families. So in the first half, we're going to be talking about noble motherhood as it pertained to basically our English queens who weren't of royal birth. And in the second half, we'll talk about how political leaders were expected to raise their children. In this bit, we're going to be discussing the mother of Anne Boleyn, who was Elizabeth Howard, the mother of Jane Seymour, who was Marjorie Wentworth, the mother of Catherine Howard, who was Jocelyn Culpepper, and the mother of Catherine Parr, who was Maud Green. I think a good start point here is it doesn't matter where you're coming from, uh, whether it's a noble point of view or an aristocratic royal point of view. 
the ideas of motherhood are very prescriptive there's a certain set of expectations that you are expected to meet and that you have ingrained in you from an early age predominantly their role is to continue their husband's line whether that's the inheritance of a title or whether that's the inheritance of a crown it's almost paradoxical in a sense because they also have to then maintain a reputation for being chase women and not having that honor or their reputation called into question lest that line is tainted lest questions be raised and we saw in our episode where we talk about margaret beaufort you know with um different different kind of airs lines and things like that how complicated things could get very very quickly I mean, when when Thomas Boleyn was asked, you know, how do you find your wife? He basically said, yeah, she has a child every year. She's doing her job. It's great. And she's effective. It's really that's it for them. You are you are raised to continue the line of your husband. And that is that's your whole existence. Literally. But also spreading your children as far as you can and into as many households as you can to kind of spread that family name and any way that they could potentially be used to garner you more favor or you know to bolster your reputation or things like that but yeah i mean from the moment a baby girl is born they're already thinking about her future role as a wife and mother unless she's being like reserved for the the church and she's going to a nunnery they're thinking about it in terms of who is her husband going to be and who are her children going to be yeah that just it defines the experience of so many of our queens this upbringing that's based on the production of children but i guess once you have the kid you know once you've fulfilled your role and you have become a mother what did that existence look like the answer is actually kind of pretty tame because noble women really didn't have too much of a motherly role as we would understand it uh, it was very hands-off. It was very, like, on kind of a supervisor level. Um, there would always be other people within the household, whether it was a, a nurse for an infant, like a wet nurse, or it would be, um, you know, a governess or tutors later. And actually, in a household where the husband, the patriarch, is the head of the household, he would have more of a say on the day-to-day, -day, like, raising of the children rather than their mother. Like you said, it's, it's more of a supervisory role. They have an input. It's it's more of them having an input, right? But they've also got their hands full doing other stuff. They're running a household, also acting as advocates for their potentially older children, especially their daughters. They were also responsible for the maintaining almost like the religious health of the household and expected to demonstrate devotion and instill that in the children and in the staff, which again goes hand in hand with the structure of the household and who's in charge of the household shock it's not the women <laughs> if you're new here um then we see that mirroring with our queens as well so you're making me laugh <laughs> we see that mirrored with the queens as well so they are also running their own household but they have the added responsibility or pressure of being at the top of the social structure like i said at the start it's a motherhood and kind of just femininity and womanhood as a whole in this period is paradoxical and yes it seems very straightforward on the surface the way we've just described it it's very um, prescriptive and it's very you know you've got to do this 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 and this to be successful but it can get messy i think when we look at the experiences of typical noble women we see the best example of like what it should look like i think marjorie wentworth in particular had a lot of kids she has this very kind of like 
landed gentry vibe to her. Like that's the kind of household she's running. And then Elizabeth Howard, of course, is um, the daughter of one of the most premier nobles in the land. So she has also been raised to kind of be on this gentry level. And I think by virtue of how little we actually know about their lives and their specific experiences, it just goes to show you how ordinary they were for the kind of women women they were. So Anne Boleyn and Jane Seymour would have been exposed to the kind of mother who was affectionate, probably, and, you know, obviously cared for these children and had their best interests at heart, but also had to kind of step back and let other people do the actual hands-on raising of the children. I'll add Joyce Culpepper into the mix, too. These women are incredibly hard to research just because I think they are. They they did their duty. Uh, like I said earlier, Thomas Mullen was quoted as, you know, he was fine with his wife because she gave him all, all the kids that he needed. You know, he, a, a son and two daughters. That's pretty good. Though if we pivot and we look at the experience of somebody who didn't have that typical experience, I think we learn a lot more about the role of a mother in early modern England just by virtue of somebody who clearly had to work harder to achieve it. And this is in the form of Catherine Parr's mother, Maud. Maud, in what I'm sure will surprise no one, was very educated. And this actually came in handy for her because after she had had her, her three children, Thomas Parr died. And suddenly you see her taking on a lot more agency over the lives of her children. So like we said before, a, a, a man was the head of the household and he would ultimately be in charge. But actually, because Maud was a, quote, single mother, she ended up calling a lot of the shots for all of her children. Um, and you see that the most with education and you see that the most with negotiating marriages. That even as a, even as a noble woman, that agency and that kind of freedom of being a single mother wasn't necessarily one that was afforded to everybody. Case in point, Margaret Beaufort wasn't in that position. You know, she was very unstable and needed to remarry very quickly. But where Maud was quite settled with those three children and, you know, was set up well enough, she, she didn't need to. And like I said, that, that, that isn't something that is available to, to everybody. So I think she's a bit of an exception there. Because the other interesting thing about Maud Parr was, um, I hesitate to say that she had a job because it really wasn't much of a job compared to what other people were doing in Tudor England. She was one of um, Catherine of Aragon's ladies-in-waiting. That's a and, job. I think playing cards all day with the I queen. Count. That's a job. And the way that it worked was it was kind of on a rotating schedule. So Maud would have residencies at court where she would have to attend to the queen. And at that time, she wouldn't be with the children. But where you see her influence, I think, most clearly is on the kind of the stuff she could do from afar. And like you said, the political negotiations. And uh, we talked about this on the episode last series where we talked about Catherine Parr's early marriages, her first two marriages before Henry. But Maud was very concerned with getting her daughters especially stable and secure households. This is something that through this series, and it's I don't think it's something that we really necessarily considered that much when we were planning it. The idea of soft power in this series is going to be so important. Can't. Yeah. And I think with history, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, big decision makers and influential decisions that are made by important people. But who's influencing those decisions? Who's doing the whispering in people's ears about those decisions? And a lot of the time it is women and a lot of the time it is mothers. So yeah, it's definitely a, an instance of soft power where it's, I have opinions and I might be consulted by my husband, but ultimately it is not my decision. Um, all I can do is 
know that I've prepared my children in the way that I best see fit. I think that's something that we do have to get used to. Again, turn off your modern brain is the role of a mother being, especially a royal mother, as we'll get to, being very distant. You know, they're not the people who are like doing the first baths and, you know, changing the diapers and all of that. (laughs) There are servants and there are governesses to do that for me. And what the mothers are doing is much more of a guidance role and uh, they're, they're influencing their kids for their future. And in the case of our six queens, their mothers were influencing them to be good wives, good mothers, people who are going to be uh, representatives of the family. Which, after all, that is what they're for. So <laughs> That's why you have daughters. Again, at least the first four of our mothers can be seen as successful, especially getting their kind of noble or elite daughters into that role of, or preparing them for that role of becoming queen, as unlikely as it may have been. So everything that we talked about as an expectation for noble motherhood, so uh, this kind of hands-off parenting style, but supervising um, education and general upbringing, the pressure is on even more for royal women, queens especially, but we're also going to be looking at the mother of Anne of Cleves, who, not a queen, but was somebody who was, uh, you know, the wife of a political leader and had to be concerned on a much larger scale with producing heirs and producing children who would represent their countries and their courts and their parents if we're shipping them off to other countries to get married, as we know their daughters did indeed do. Yeah, I, the, the, the stakes are a lot higher. So yeah, Catherine of Aragon's mother was Isabel of Castile, who was the queen of half of what we now understand as as modern Spain, but in her own right. Um, So she shared power with her husband, who was the king of Aragon. In a kind of a similar vein, but on a much smaller scale, Anne of Cleves' mother was actually an heiress in her own right. So uh, Maria of Eulichburg was actually the only child of her father and inherited his land so actually gave those lands to her husband upon their marriage so though she didn't necessarily wield a ton of political power over that inheritance she still was kind of a high status figure because that was so inherently tied up with who she was again not maybe the, the typical royal queenly mothers because they did have so much political power inherently within them But I think we can use them as good examples of royal women who raised their daughters to be royal. Like you said, the the key thing here to note is that these women are exceptions, potentially, to the rule. They are politically active. They are vocal. You know, Anna Cleve's mother is very politically active. She's attending, you know, imperial diets. Um, She's making it. She's attending parliament. She's giving speeches. And, and has a voice that is listened to. And Isabel of Castile is formidable. Like She's leading army, she's leading campaign, she's doing what we've now, some of the things now questionable actions. But, you know, she is in the thick of what it is to be effectively a king. Now, the thing I think is worth bearing in mind at this point is 
she's not raising her daughters in the same way. That's such an important point she, because I think as 21st century women, we really want that to be the case. Like we really want to look at her experiences as a queen in her own right and as a powerful queen in her own right and think, well, how did this influence Catherine of Aragon? And it's not to say that it didn't in unofficial ways, right? Like I think we can very clearly look at the tenacity of Catherine of Aragon and 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 see where that came from. But on the level of you know education and expectations um and the role of women Isabel was not like a radical feminist as we would understand it she was not raising Catherine to like be this girl boss like go to England and like rule half of it um that's not happening it's it's still a very traditional upbringing for Catherine of Aragon Isabel has to do a lot of what she does because there's nobody else to do it like this is her job and it's not necessarily an easy one and I think she did come get up against a lot of some criticism regarding her gender and things like that why is she going to put her daughters in the same position why is she going to make their lives unnecessarily difficult when there is no need to when really actually what we can do is what's that spread the name of Aragon and Castile and <laughs> throughout Europe and have them as a queen consort for a politically expedient country that makes far more sense so yes i think while i would like the idea of uh catherine of aragon being raised to be a lara croft type figure it's just not going to happen where i think you do see that come out even in the slightest bit is through the education in that catherine received a really good education um better than than most women would have at the time so I guess in that sense, I guess you do kind of see Isabel wanting to make sure that her daughters are well-equipped intellectually to be able to enter courts and enter political conversations and hold their own. And we, we know that this was successful because Catherine certainly was that kind of ideal Renaissance humanist queen. But she also wasn't necessarily letting Catherine believe that she was going to go to England and become the queen and suddenly wield all of this power, uh, the same power that her mother had. Like Catherine was very much raised to believe that she would be the support for her husband, that she would be the mother of his heirs, and that would be her role. I mean, she had her one moment where she was ready to ride into battle and kill the King of Scotland. But for the most part, she she knew her place. And that was something that her mother and the people that her mother hired for her daughter's household did instill in her. I know it, it's it's kind of it sounds regrettable because we all want Isabella of Castile to be this cool modern mother, but uh, not no, quite. No, but it, she was training Catherine to do her job. She was training her to be useful. And what more do you need? You don't need anything more. And for as much as I love him and as much as it pains me to say this, if Catherine of Aragon had entered England under those expectations, Henry VII would have been quite keen to squash those very, Actually, very quickly. Actually, there's a fun quote. I don't, um, I couldn't find the exact source for it. So it might not be a real thing. It might just be one of those fake internet quotes. I don't know. But there is a quote that apparently in the marriage negotiations, Henry VII admired slash was scared of Isabel of Castile 
and he was he was terrified of her because she, she was, was terrifying and he made a remark to someone apparently that if Catherine was anything like her mother then he would give her half a country I love again that. i don't know if that's real but it kind of like that's the um, that's the idea you get of yeah and i mean i think that that is credit to isabel's <laughs> reputation and i mean to that let's be real here Catherine knew how to hold her own i you know she was very aware of where she came from and you know no matter how bad things got for her she always had that instilled self-respect and that kind of self-importance of you at the very least if you're not going to respect me as a wife you are going to respect me as a princess of Aragon and Castile and I think that's where we definitely see Isabel's legacy it's um you know she would have had the same role as any of the other noble mothers with kind of managing Catherine's education and what she foresaw for her daughter and getting her daughter ready for that role as a wife and a mother, obviously on a higher scale, because as a wife of probably someone who's ruling a country and the mother of the people who will next be ruling the country. But if we're looking at like a unique experience of what it was like to have Isabel of Castile as your mother, I think that's where we see it with Catherine. And I guess we kind of see a version of it in Anne of Cleves too. Like, I think it's on a much smaller scale, considering that if we're comparing the courts of, you know, the Iberian courts versus, you know, the Cleves and the Holy Roman Empire, it's it's not quite as influential. But we we do see Anne no. having that loyalty to her family and this need to um, to please and honor her family. That, again, is quite interesting because Maria had, you know, what we were saying earlier, she's very politically savvy. She's very politically engaged. And, and Anne's sister goes on to be that way inclined as well, um, Sibylla. You, you know, she becomes very engaged in the Reformation, but all educational points in the way that they were educated would not point to that in the slightest. They had a very conservative education by all conservative traditional education by all accounts. It was focused on domestic sciences, home crafting, running a household. That, that was what her role was. That was what her job was. But where was. I think it is unique compared to all the other ones is that, um, as we learned from our, our interview with Heather, Anne grew up in a very feminine world. Um, she literally grew up in a yeah. side of court that was run by women. So I think Maria would have had a lot more say in Anne's day-to-day -day education and potentially a lot more of a hands-on role than any of the other mothers that we talked about, um, maybe save like Maud Parr. Um, just because usually, like we said, it was kind of a step back role of I will give direction if I can, but other people will carry it out. And you might not, you might not even see your kids on a daily basis, you know, depending on where they are or what they're doing. But it seems like the world that Anne grew up in with her mother and her sisters was a lot smaller. And you potentially see, therefore, a lot more of her mother's influence. Well, I think that's an interesting point, too, about the, the feminist side of the, the Cleves court. You are building a network of mothers and of women and noble women. So I think as well with that, you've also got the knowledge sharing that comes along with it about expectations of, of motherhood and, and things like that, which, as you mentioned, 
you know, our other other queens don't, mothers don't have that hand-on approach, nor do they have access to that same network that Anne's going to be exposed to. But on the whole, as you said, what Anne is learning from her mother is really the, the feminine arts. And um, in, in the case of both her and Catherine of Aragon, it's how to be good representatives of your family so that when we ship you abroad or at least to, you know, another German court or something, you will have all the tools you need to be successful. Kind of looking back on all the things that we've talked about in this episode and what your job was once you've had the child what your job was as a mother I think it really (laughs) that's what it boils down to is preparing your daughter to enter into this cycle that early modern women have to go through like we said unless they're going to a nunnery they are going to be expected to become wives and mothers and your job as a wife and a mother is to make sure that your girls are ready for that so as we go ahead in the series I think we're going to be like if this seemed kind of general to you it's because we're going to be unpacking a lot of these things throughout the series we're going to be talking about the different facets of the role of a mother uh like you know education is going to be a really big one and the actual what did it look like once you've had the kid um the role of governesses and nurses and all of that so we will be going into detail i promise but we just wanted to give you this foundation so that when we go ahead you understand just how different this role was to the one that we are used to now these women were a lot more distant to their children than would be sort of accepted now but we do hope that you can get an idea of what their world looked like and what their personal experiences with mothers and the societal expectations for mothers what that looked like going into talking about their own experiences in future episodes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Six Queens. In the next episode, Callie and I will discuss pregnancy and all its risks. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and review. Long live the queens.